Amen. If you have a Bible, or if you need to grab one in front of you, pick one up, get your, your phone out, your tablet out, and I'd like you to find the book of Colossians. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1 this morning. You can look in your bulletin for some notes if you'd like to follow along with the notes. Colossians 1. This is week three of three in our series about giving thanks. Yesterday evening, my phone started lighting up about the time a football game ended. And you guys know I'm a Jayhawk fan, and uh, I don't have anything against Texas, but a lot of people were texting me about Jayhawks beat Texas yesterday. And several people asked me if we were going to add an extra week to our series on giving thanks because the Jayhawks won a football game yesterday. And I said, that may not be a bad idea. First time they've won a conference football game since I've been the pastor here. We're not going to do that. This is going to be week three of three. We're going to end this morning. Next week, we're going to begin a series uh, getting us ready to think about Christmas. We're going to be focusing on the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew. But this morning is week three of three as we give thanks. And in this series, we're looking at the Apostle Paul. We're looking at how he gave thanks, and we're not looking at Paul because we want to be like Paul. The only person in the Bible we want to be like is Jesus. We want to follow Jesus, and we want to be conformed to his image. But in the Bible, when Paul writes these letters to these churches, and he prays for them in those letters, it's not just Paul praying. It's also the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write down these prayers So we're not just learning from Paul, but we're learning from God himself, from the Holy Spirit, as to how he wants us to pray. And so we're asking ourselves, how should we give thanks? How did Paul give thanks? What should change in our life? So week one, we looked at Paul praying for the church in Corinth. Week two, we looked at Paul praying for the church in Thessalonica. And this morning, we're going to see how did Paul pray for the church in Colossae. And before we jump in and read the prayer, I want to give you just a little bit of background so you know a few things about Colossae and the church there. So here we go. Number one, Colossae was a small agrarian town. It was close to Hierapolis and Laodicea. And so I'm going to give you just a little Bible trivia here. This is free. You don't have to pay extra for this. Just because you showed up, I'm going to let you know, okay? Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae were kind of like sister towns. Like people think of Midland and Odessa together. People thought about these three towns together. They were close enough and they were connected for a very important reason. Hierapolis was known for having hot medicinal springs. People would go there to sit in these hot, piping hot springs of water. Colossae was known for having cold mountain springs. It was a little bit higher in the mountains. So Hierapolis H had hot water. Colossae C had cold water. Laodicea had no water. And so if you lived in Laodicea, you needed water and you had to pipe it in. You had to get it from one of two different cities, Hierapolis or Colossae. And if they piped in water across the river here from Hierapolis, and they did that, they piped it across, that hot water started off in hot as hot water in Hierapolis. By the time it got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. It kind of cooled off a little bit. But then if they piped water from Colossae, just down the road, that cold water from the mountains, and they got it there, it warmed up on the way. And it wasn't really cold anymore. So there was sort of this running joke in Laodicea about the water is always lukewarm. It's not hot. It's not cold. So when you read in the book of Revelation and Jesus writes a letter to the church in Laodicea and he's trying to communicate to them, you guys aren't good for anything. You're just sort of 
lousy and your faith really isn't doing anything good or bad or anything, it's just you're not doing it, what does he say to him? He says, you're lukewarm. I wish that you were hot or I wish that you were cold. And sometimes we read that verse and we say, why would Jesus want somebody to be cold for him? Well, he's not saying he would rather them be against him. He's talking to people who understand we don't have hot water and we don't have cold water. We just sort of have lukewarm water and it just keeps you alive. It's really not good for anything. It's not refreshing like the cold water from Colossae. It doesn't have any medicinal value like the hot springs in Hierapolis. It's just lukewarm. And so Jesus says to that church, because you're lukewarm, I'm just going to spit you out of my mouth. He's saying to them, you're not good for anything. And so these three towns were connected, and our focus is in Colossae, where they had this cold water. It was destroyed by an earthquake about 60 AD, which is interesting because that's not too many years after Paul wrote this letter to the church there. Flattened by an earthquake, along with several other towns in the area. And interesting, it's never been excavated. Archaeologists have petitioned the Turkish government for permission to go in and to excavate and to dig around and to find the streets and the buildings. They've just never granted that permission. They just sort of always put it off. And so a lot of these ancient towns you can go to, they've been excavated, you can walk the streets, you can see the old ruins and the buildings. Colossae just kind of looks like an overgrown, uh, grassy pile of rocks. It's just never been excavated and dug out. We have found some artifacts in the area. Archaeologists have kind of dug around the area. And from the area, we know this. Religion in Colossae was marked by animism, pluralism, and syncretism. And let me explain all those isms for you, okay? Animism. These people, before they converted to faith in Jesus, they believed that every physical object had a spirit. Rocks, trees, rivers, people, the earth, everything had spirits. And their job in life, their goal in life, was to offer sacrifices and to do things at the temples of these pagan gods to control those spirits. So they were just by nature animistic. They were also pluralistic, meaning none of these folks believed in one true God. They all believed in sort of multiple gods, and any god was as good as the other, and they worshipped not a single deity, but many, many different deities. And lastly, all of those things led to syncretism, which is just a weird mixing of religions. It's what you might call cafeteria-style theology, where you go through the cafeteria line and you get what you want, but you pass on what you don't want. They just sort of took a little here and a little there and mashed it all together into their own synchristic form of religion. And so one last thing you need to know about Colossae is this. The church was started not by Paul, but by a guy named Epaphras while Paul was in Ephesus. Paul lived in Ephesus for about two years. It was about the longest stop he made on any of his missionary journeys. And while he was there, different people would come to Ephesus, would visit there. Colossae and Ephesus are pretty close. And while he was in Ephesus, this guy named Epaphras, probably on business, visited. He left his hometown of Colossae. Maybe for business, he went to Ephesus. And while he's there in Ephesus, he hears Paul preaching. He becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he becomes a missionary immediately. He goes back to his hometown of Colossae and he starts a church there. And we know a few other folks that were members of the church in Colossae. Maybe you've heard in the New Testament of a guy named Philemon. Philemon also lived in Colossae. And these were two guys who were members of the church there. Paul wrote a letter to Philemon and you can read that in the New Testament. We know the church in Colossae met in a home or maybe several different homes. They didn't have a building like we would gather in uh, 
uh, here, but they just met in homes. And it's interesting, when you read the book of Colossians, that Paul is not writing to people that he knows personally. He had never been to Colossae. Ephesus was this preaching point, and people are coming and going in Ephesus, and they're hearing the gospel, and they're taking it back to their towns, and that happened in Colossae. Epaphras came, he heard the gospel, he went back to his hometown, he started the church there. And so when Paul writes this letter, he's writing to really strangers. And when he prays for these people, he's praying for people that he's never actually met, most of them, face to face. And so it's a little bit different than some of Paul's other letters. Our passage is in chapter 1, starting in verse 3, and we're going to read down to verse 14. And I'd like you to follow along as we read it, and then we'll pray and we'll break it down a little bit. So look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this prayer, as we think about this ancient prayer that Paul prayed for this church, we ask that you would help us to understand how he prayed for these people that we would see clearly how Paul gave thanks and why he gave thanks, and that we would see how these things, these ideas and these truths apply to our lives today. Thousands of years later, how do you want us to be thankful? How do you want us to pray? Give us wisdom this morning. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to ask and answer a few questions before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So the first question is this. Why did Paul give thanks for this church? This is the very same idea we talked about last week when we looked at Paul thanking God for the church in Thessalonica. It's very simple. Paul gave thanks because God's grace impacted every area of their lives. God's grace impacted every part of their lives. And you see this especially in verse 3 down to verse 8. Just look at the text. He's saying, we always thank God when we pray for you. Why? Verse 4, we've heard of your faith. In Christ Jesus. That's their vertical relationship with God through Christ. We've heard of your faith. And we've heard of the love that you have for who? All the saints. This is the horizontal relationship they have with other people. And the motivation for all of it, verse 5, is what? Because you have hope laid up for you in heaven. 
He's saying the gospel has impacted every area of your life. Vertically, your relationship with God has been changed. Horizontally, the way you love the other believers, the other saints, has been changed. And your attitude and all of it is filled with hope. God's grace has impacted all of who you are. Then he piles up some more terms to try to describe this. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, the gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing all over the world, but especially among you. In other words, God's grace didn't just save you and leave you where you are, but God's grace saved you and now is changing you into the kind of people that he wants you to be. God's grace has impacted all of who you are as a person. That's the way it's supposed to be for us. God's grace is not something that comes into our lives and gives us a ticket that is now punched for heaven someday. God's grace is something that comes into our lives, gives us this hope of heaven, but that changes us every single aspect of who we are and how we live. Let me give you one example of of what this looks like and what this means. Our elders and our staff are reading a book right now. It's a study through the book of Philippians, and it's called To Live as Christ, To Die as Gain. It's by a pastor named Matt Chandler. And we came across a quote this last week in our reading as we studied together, and I just want to share this quote with you. This is what Pastor Matt says. He says, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but that personal relationship with Christ was never meant to play out in the privacy of my own mind and heart. Yes, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, but that was never meant to just be a private thing. It's supposed to impact every single area of my life and my relationships with others and my attitude. It has to play out publicly. Listen to me. You need more than good sermons and sound theology and quality music to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? You need more than a good sermon, you need more than good theology and good information. You need more than good music to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to grow in that. That's one of the reasons we get up every Sunday morning and we come to this building, not that there's anything special about this building, but we come to this building so that we can be together is because we need each other to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. Now look, as Baptists, we're really good at talking to people about you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's fantastic. We should encourage people, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But the danger in talking about that is that we give people the impression that a relationship with Jesus is only a personal thing that never spills out into our relationships with other people. And Paul says right here, I'm thankful for this church, the church in Colossae, because they have a relationship with Christ through faith, but also because they love all the saints. If all you needed was a good sermon, just go home and get on the internet. You can find way better sermons than I can preach. If all you need is good information, good theology, I can recommend lots of books and you can just go home and be a bookworm and read all by yourself and get it all figured out. If all you need is music, look, we have an awesome band. I don't know that you're going to top them, but you can get on iTunes, you can get on Spotify, and you can find some pretty good music. But you need more than music. You need more than sermons. And you need more than information and theology. You know what else you need to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ? People. People. 
You need people. You need messy people, and I don't mean like physically messy, like sloppy messy, just their life. People whose lives are a little bit messy. You need those folks in your life if you're going to grow. You need difficult people. You need people that frustrate you. You need mature people. You need people who are a little bit further down the road spiritually than you that can set an example for you. You need people who can teach you and help you and be a friend to you. You need people that you can minister to. You will never be able to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ if you think my personal relationship with Jesus is a personal and private thing only. And Paul's trying to hammer this home to these churches. Over and over, he says, I'm thankful for you, not just because you know God through Jesus, but because you know God through Jesus and you have love for all the saints. God's grace has impacted every part of who you are. Vertically, your relationship with God, and horizontally, your relationships with other people. Next question is this. After he gave thanks, How did he pray for the church? And we could spend a lot of time on these, but I'm going to go through some of them quick. You ready? How did Paul pray for this church? He prayed that they would have spiritual wisdom. He prayed that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That idea of walking in the Bible just describes your life, that their life would be worthy of Jesus. And he prayed that they would be strengthened to endure. That's just sort of a summary of verse 9, 10, and 11. He wants them to have wisdom, He wants their life to be like walking worthy before the Lord. And he wants them to have strength to endure. He knows that they don't have it, so he's praying that God would do it for them. And I just want to stop right there before I give you the fourth one. And I want to point out something obvious. When Paul stopped to pray for this church, he's not only praying through the sick list, right? He's not only praying about financial concerns and economic matters. He's not praying about political issues. Nothing that Paul is praying about for this church has anything to do with earthly things. They're all spiritual things. He's not praying for earthly things. He's praying about spiritual things. And so you look at that and you say, well, does that mean I shouldn't? pray about anything earthly? I don't think it means that. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. All your anxieties is a pretty big umbrella, right? That's going to include your sick list and political issues in our country and financial issues and economic matters. It's going to include a lot of different things. And Peter says, look, cast all your anxieties on him because he absolutely cares for you. I just want you to notice this. When Paul prays for this church and all these other churches, his first impulse in prayer is not to just pray for those who are sick that they would get better. His first impulse in prayer is not to pray that they would have good leaders over them so that life would be easy. His first impulse is not to pray that God would give them lots of financial blessings so that they would never have to worry about money. His first impulse is to pray over and over and over again for non-earthly things, for spiritual things. So I've given you three. Look at the last thing. How did Paul pray for this church? Here's the fourth way. He prayed that they would be thankful. That's kind of a funny prayer if you really stop and think about it. Paul is praying that this church in Colossae would be good at praying. 
asking God that they would be good at giving thanks, praying about their prayer life. And why does he want them to be a thankful bunch of people? Is it because Colossae was just such a nice, respectable town and they should be grateful for their community? No. Did he want them to be thankful because they had nice families and nice things and nice homes and nice stuff? No. Again, none of the things that he wants them to be thankful for are earthly based. They're all spiritually based. And I just want you to see some of these. This is not on your outline. I just want you to see it in the text. Look at Colossians 1, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He says, I want you to be thankful people because you have an inheritance coming. And can I tell you something? This is way better than some lawyer calling you up out of the blue and saying your dear old Uncle Jimmy kicked the, kicked the can and he left you a whole bunch of money that's coming your way. We're not talking about that kind of inheritance. We're talking about an inheritance of a new restored creation, a new heavens and a new earth that you get to rule over and live in forever. We're talking about an inheritance that includes an eternity of life as contrasted with an eternity of death. We're talking about an inheritance that is is described in the Bible as the kingdom of God, a place that Jesus has gone to prepare for you so that when he comes back, you can be with him. That's your inheritance. And you don't get it because you're a good person. I don't get it because I'm a good person. There's one rightful heir to this inheritance, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And the Bible says that when you have faith in him, when you believe that he is who the Bible says he is, when you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, somehow that faith that you have in Jesus unites you to Jesus so that what is his becomes yours. And this inheritance that he's earned is yours. Paul says you need to be thankful for that. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, I want you to be thankful because he has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. I've been teaching a class in Midland, a a seminary class. And uh, I had these guys in the class. It's a, a class on Christian witness. I had them practice sharing their testimony. And I said, you know, I want you to stand up and you're going to tell us your life before Jesus and how you met Jesus and then your life after Jesus. And not one of those guys stood up and said, well, in my old life, I was a member of Satan's domain of darkness. Not a person. But the Bible says that that's true for every last one of us. You may hear some people share their testimony and you may say, well, I don't have any anything really bad in my history. I don't have anything really shocking that would make it a good testimony to share. You have something pretty bad. The Bible says that left to ourselves, apart from God's grace, we are members of the devil's domain of darkness. And Paul says, you want a reason to give thanks? You've been transferred out of that domain into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You are not a natural-born citizen of the kingdom of God. Do you understand that? It's not yours by birthright. By birthright, you're part of the domain of darkness, just like I am. And Paul says, by God's grace, because of what Christ has done for you, 
You've been moved into a new kingdom. You're no longer a citizen of this domain, but you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Be thankful for that, Paul says. One last thing he wants them to be thankful for is verse 14. He says, I want you to give thanks because in Christ, this king who rules over this kingdom, we have redemption in the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is the idea that we've been bought. Jesus shed his blood on the cross to purchase his people. He paid the ransom price so that we could be moved from one kingdom to the other. We have the forgiveness of our sins. Not in that God is just going to sweep sin under the rug and forget about it or turn a blind, a blind eye to it. But that the judge will look at the cross and say he paid the penalty. He paid the price. He provided the ransom so that my people could be moved from this kingdom to that kingdom. So that my people who are guilty could be forgiven. You and I give thanks through the cross. That's what Paul's saying to this church, and that's the last idea on your outline. How do these verses change the way that we give thanks? Our thanksgiving must always be cross-centered. Always, always, always. We give thanks through the cross. And you understand, that's what we do in the Lord's Supper, right? We gather together and we give thanks for what Christ has done for us at the cross. You know, in most Baptist churches, we call what we're about to do the Lord's Supper. So if you grew up in a tradition like ours, you're used to hearing that term, the Lord's Supper. In some other denominations, maybe a little more liturgical, they might call it communion most of the time. Maybe you've grown up hearing that term. But many, many years ago, most churches didn't call it the Lord's Supper. They didn't call it communion. They called it the Eucharist. The Eucharist. And it comes from the Greek word meaning to give thanks. And churches called it the Eucharist. Christians called what we're about to do the Eucharist because they understood. When we gather together and we take the bread and we take the cup, it's not our attempt to sort of work up guilty feelings for how rotten we are and we should feel bad for for all the things that we've done. But it's our attempt to gather together as the people of God and to give thanks to acknowledge that Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That his blood shed for us, his body broken for us, gives us life, gives us an inheritance, gives us redemption, and gives us the forgiveness of sins. And so in just a minute, we're going to take the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've obeyed his command to be baptized, we would love for you to celebrate with us this morning to participate and to give thanks as we take the bread and as we take the cup. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we don't want you to feel in any way out of place, but we just ask that you spend the next few minutes thinking about in your life what would it look like for you to have this relationship with Jesus Christ where you believe that he died for you, that he redeemed you, and that his death has provided the forgiveness of your sins. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask our band to come up and our our elders and our deacons to head to the back. You join me as we pray together. Father, we're grateful for you, and we're grateful for what you have done for us through Christ. Father, we want to pause this morning just to acknowledge 
that all of our thanksgiving comes through the cross. That this idea of grace is just a a theological term, a theological idea if there's not a bloody cross standing behind it. And Father, we experience your grace only because Jesus Christ gave his body and shed his blood to carry our sins and to bear our punishment. Father, we have no hope apart from Jesus, and we acknowledge that this morning. And as we take of the bread and as we take of the cup, Father, we simply want to give thanks for who you are and for all that you have done for us through Christ.